So I'm going to talk a lot today about about disenchantment and about secularism and modernism and um, I kind of it's it's not super technical but I'm kind of using those terms inter- interchangeably. Um, just briefly, the idea of disenchantment is that we um, we live in an age where, in the course of the last 500 or so years, um, the way we think about what we know and how we know it and what it all means has changed really dramatically from pretty much, uh, uh, Taylor would argue, uh, pretty much the rest of human history. And that's kind of, that's kind of the modern project. Um, and so li- we're living in a secular age. We're living in a time... Um, we're living in a time where there's no longer, particularly for us in Western culture, there's no longer this sort of foundation of Christendom, um, where Christian morality and, and, and a Christian worldview uh, sort of hangs in the background of all of our conversations. That's gone. There's not a shared ontology in, in the sense that there's not this shared sense of what the world means and a sense of knowledge that, that's shared. Um, we've lost what, what, what we could call common sense, um, both in the sense that we've lost common sense uh, as a culture, um, but also in the sense that, that, that we hold something in common together and that it's easy to talk to people who are different than us um, and still have some, a certain amount of common ground. We're losing that more and more. Um, you get that uh, from this like, weird post-truth that's happening where you can dismiss almost anything as fake news these days. Um, and this is all interconnected. This is all interrelated. Um, you get this tremendous amount of religious cynicism. Um, spirituality is still fairly welcome in our culture, but if you start to take anything too seriously, you get this eye-rolling sense of, well, you've carried it too far. Um, but religious de- desire remains, and you find all kinds of different spiritualities that are thriving in the midst of it. So you get the sort of Oprah-fied spirituality, which is taken lightly, but it's very positivist. It's very much about living the good life. It's about finding joy in the everyday. Um, You find people who get a a religious kind of zeal around things like yoga or transcendental meditation or soul cycle or CrossFit or veganism. All of them get attached. You know, it's something more than just a hobby. It's something more about sort of, there's almost a transcendent value that gets attached to these things, a religious kind of devotion to these things. Um, And then, of course, you get this sexual buffet that that marks our culture, where anything goes, where 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 sex itself is unbound from any meaning and is sort of free for pleasure. Um, It's unbound from facts. Um, The idea of maleness and femaleness as biological facts is, uh, well, it's fake news um, to many people. So I think it's really important for us to talk a, a little bit just briefly about what what disenchantment means and what secularism has, what, where it has come from. Um, 500 years ago, if you met somebody on the street and you got to talking to them, you'd find that they had a sense of spiritual vulnerability. They were vulnerable to blessings. They were vulnerable to curses. They were, there was a sense that the world was full of mystery. And brick by brick by brick, that feel for the world has been taken away. Um, there's no longer a sense of mystery. There's a, there's a sense of mastery over, you know, the universe. Uh, the whole universe uh, can, be, can be known, can be mastered, can be grasped. That expanded yesterday with this SpaceX launch that tells us that, man, we are not that far from being able to, to, to go to Mars. 
Um, we launched a car into space and it's gonna be out there. You know, some estimates say that that thing will be in orbit for millions of years, um, so long as the radiation belts don't destroy it. Which is, which is kind of crazy. I mean, these achievements are meaningful, don't get me wrong. But brick by brick, they've taken, um, they've taken on this attitude, a sort of prideful attitude that says, well, there is no mystery, there is no transcendence, we can, we can grasp all of these things. And so this is the reason conversations about God and the spiritual have become uh, undermined and, and more and more superfluous. It's important to note that these are true for Christians as well as non-Christians. Um, we are disenchanted people, the mass, vast majority of us. Um, the church has often been co-opted by the values of secularism and has allowed that background to shape the way that we approach our ministry. I love the way Dallas Willard talks about this. He says we, we essentially live in an age of biblical deism where we, you know, we hold on to faith that God um, exists and that the scriptures are true and all of this, but essentially we act as though God gave us the scriptures and then said, okay, figure it out for yourselves and backed away. And so we don't live functionally in, in a relationship uh, a relational, interacting relationship with God. Um, we spend our time trying to sort of master the Bible as though that were the way into everything else that we need um, as in, in modern life. And so you have this very modern approach to Scripture that treats it like it's, a, uh, it's one more text. It's, it's, it, we treat it the same way we would treat a biology textbook or a work of great literature. It's to be mastered, it's to be broken down, um, it's, to be, uh, it's, it's to be parsed in as many ways as we possibly can. Um, Kenneth Parcell from 30 Rock sums this up nicely when he says, uh, uh, my favorite class in school was science when we studied the Old Testament. Um, <laughs> he, uh, there's, there's a kind of fundamentalist approach to scripture that, that, that takes it as this, this science textbook to be broken down. But to be fair, this is also being done on the, on the, on the left from liberalism, that the, the same kind of deconstructive action is taking to break it down and to give us permission to do whatever we want. Both have a modernist approach to scripture. Both are treating it as a manual to be worked out as opposed to being a living, breathing, fiery thing. Um, today I'm going to talk about three features of disenchantment that I think present opportunities for ministry for all of us. I'll dig into each one, but if you want to just know what's coming, it's, the first is this idea that disenchantment is our default setting. The second is this idea of unbundled identity, which is a big concept. I'll dig into that. And the third thing is um, we'll talk about the bravery of unbelief. Um, but first, the idea of a default setting. We, we experience a world that has been conditioned to have doubt as the underlying belief. Um, we experience our faith with doubt perpetually in the background. And it wasn't always this way. This is one of those things that's the byproduct of a modern, of a modern culture and a modern worldview. And so with doubt as the background, one of the things we end up doing is we end up, um, we end up thinking of, of knowledge as sort of the key to getting, uh, to getting our way around things. And we think of knowledge like accumulating facts on a whiteboard. So if you can imagine an NFL quarterback saying, okay, if you want to know everything that there is to know about being an NFL quarterback, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write down everything I know. I'm going to spend the next 10 years, I'm going to write down every fact, every situation I can think of, um, every, everything about the mechanics of throwing a football and of reading a field and all of this. I'm going to write them all down in a book. And so he does this and then some five-year-old kid, you know, his dad comes along and says, you're going to be a great NFL quarterback, memorize this book. 
So the kid spends the next 10, 12 years memorizing all the facts, memorizing all the details. And by the way, never touches a football, right? And so at like 16 years old, dad takes him to the, the football coach and says, this kid knows everything there is to know about playing quarterback. Uh, he learned from an NFL quarterback player. He's going to be fantastic. You need to put him in the game. And the coach says, well, of course, if this is true, I want to put the guy in the game. Puts him in a game. What's going to happen when he takes his first snap, right? He's going to get killed because <laughs> he actually doesn't know anything about, about playing the game of football because knowing football means way more than knowing the facts about football. It's way more than what you can write down on a whiteboard. It's more akin, knowledge in general, is more akin to, uh, as, as Michael Pollyani puts it, knowledge is more akin to having a white cane, to being blind and having a white cane and tapping your way around the room. Knowledge is three-dimensional, it's embodied, it's emotional, it's, it's, as, it's as much embodied as it is in our minds. And so when we talk about our default setting, what we're talking about is that we've lived our lives and we've heard these stories told over and over again, and we've encountered ideas and we've had experiences, and all of that, in a sense, has been our way of sort of tapping around the room of the world and finding boundaries and finding borders and finding a, a way of knowing the world that's three-dimensional like that. It's far more than you can simply explain. It's something that happens in your, in your gut, something that happens in your heart. And so if we, want to, if we want to talk about why we uh, live in a culture where this default setting is disenchanted and is suspicious of religion in general, we have to talk about that, that white cane scenario, that room that's get, that gets built from the kinds of stories and ideas that are constantly being told. And I think one of the things for us as, as pastors and church leaders to think about is the fact that the, the, one of the most significant factors in shaping that room is repetition. When you hear the same story over and over again, it has a profound effect. It builds a wall. When you hear the same story over and over again about whether it's evolution or whether it's, uh, uh, whether it's just the irrelevance of God and spirituality to ordinary everyday life, you hear that story over and over again, it forms a wall, and that becomes part of the way that you know the world, whether you're even aware of it or not. And so for us in the church, I think one of the things we have to re-embrace is a willingness to basically repeat ourselves over and over again. There's a reason the church throughout church history has made telling the story of the gospel the heart of the church gathering for, you know, for, for the better part of 2,000 years. It's because there's a recognition, there's a brilliant pastoral recognition that if we want people to know a world in which Jesus raised from the dead, it's a story that we can't tell enough times. Uh, there's a great story in a book called Worship Words by Ron and Deborah Reenstra where they said um, that after church one Sunday, this kid came running up to the pastor and said, hey, pastor, why is it that every time you finish reading the scriptures, you say the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever? And the pastor says, that's why. <laughs> that's exactly why. Because you know that, because you've owned that, because you've embodied that, and you can't help but when you hear the scriptures read, hear that repeated again and again even in your own mind. And so I would want to challenge us to get over novelty, get over the feeling that we have to do something new over and over and over again in order to effectively form and shape our people. We have to be willing to repeat ourselves and we have to be willing to say the same story, perhaps in new ways, but, but, but say the same story again and again to help give shape to the room that people are living in. 
I think if we do this, what we can actually find is that um, we, we can deconstruct some of the walls that people have formed because of the stories they've heard. The walls can open up and they can discover new worlds and new ways of thinking and being. Second idea I want to dig into is this idea of unbundled identity. 500 years ago, if you were born, and you were born in Bavaria, and you were Catholic, and you were the son of a baker, and you were betrothed to the butcher's daughter, all those key aspects of your identity were pretty much handed to you right off the bat. You knew that you'd probably be living in Bavaria the rest of your life. You'd be Catholic the rest of your life. You'd be a baker because you'd inherit the family business and take part in the family business. And you'd probably marry the butcher's daughter so long as neither of you got typhus. So <laughs> born, into this, uh, born into this, it's hard to move away from any one of uh, these elements. Um, that's the way culture worked. That's the way identity worked at the time. What modernism did, what, what happened over the course of the last 500 years, is that each element of this, uh, this sense of identity gets unbundled. It's no longer something that's handed to you as a, as a group. It's something that you're born into, but you're given a massive array of options for finding other things. So the world's flat now, it's easy to emigrate, it's easy to go somewhere else, you don't have to live in Bavaria. Religion has become a buffet. You don't, you're not bound to be Catholic because your family was Catholic. You're not bound to be a baker. Um, and, and, and more broadly, uh, 500 years ago, if you were born into a certain social stratus, you were, you were essentially stuck there. You were gonna be there your whole life. And what things like the French Revolution and the American Revolution did is it deconstructed the monarchy, but it also deconstructed the borders between these different social hierarchies. So now you can be born into poverty and find your way into wealth, or you can be born wealthy and end your life very, very poor. Um, those are structures, in a sense, that are new. Um, or really, that's the absence of structures that kind of held society in certain ways for a very long time. Um, what this leads to, and what pastorally many of you have probably experienced with, with members of your parish and your church and, and perhaps with yourself, is a tremendous amount of anxiety. Who am I? What am I supposed to do with my life? What am I supposed to do with my career? Who am I supposed to marry? All of those things become question marks. And much of people's 20s and 30s are spent wrestling with those ideas and trying to figure out where do I go and what do I do? And sometimes those questions never go away. Into your 40s and your 50s, have I wasted my life? Have I lost the opportunities that I needed to have? If you couple this, uh, this radical freedom of unbundled identity, uh, couple this with the erosion of truth, the erosion of common sense, the idea that the body has any kind of meaning, um, we get the fluidity of sexual identity. We can be whatever we want to be with regard to our sexual identity. And hear me on this, I'm not saying that, that every sense of sexual identity is a choice that somebody's made, but rather that the conditions of our world have made it much more fluid and much more easy to create anxiety and a lack of identity around sexuality that make these kind of fluid identity choices much more plausible and much more possible. Now the answer our culture has come up with for all of this anxiety is numbing. We numb ourselves with social media, with food. I think there's so much more to foodie culture than just a love of food. Um, we numb ourselves with sex. We numb ourselves with drugs and alcohol. Um, if you don't believe that, look at the rise of vaping, how, how suddenly vaping is this huge, massive thing. Um, people get very quickly addicted to nicotine in new ways as it's made available. 
Um, interesting sort of side effect about, or side comment about numbing and, and, and vaping. Um, the drug Chantix, you may have seen commercials for Chantix. It's an antidepressant. Uh, well, it's, it's particularly prescribed these days to help people quit smoking, but it wasn't invented as a drug to help people quit smoking. It was invented as an antidepressant. Um, and so it, it inhibits the brain from creating certain uh, hormones and, and, and stuff <laughs> that, uh, uh, that creates anxiety. And what they found is that it emulated the way that nicotine does the exact same thing. And so they started prescribing Chantix to people who uh, were trying to quit smoking because it helped to numb the brain in the same way that nicotine helps to numb the brain. Um, and of course, we numb ourselves with entertainment and with, with any kind of distractions. Numbing is just a key feature of the modern world. Um, I would argue that everything we do, we do for a reason. All of our behavior happens for a spiritual reason. And it's true that we're either nourishing ourselves or we're numbing ourselves in our world today. And I think the reason that we don't nourish ourselves, the reason we choose numbing over nourishing, is the same reason that we don't eat healthy food. It comes with challenges. Healthy food is often bitter. It takes time to make. It's repetitious. You eat the same things over and over again. You lead to boredom with eating healthy foods. So you find yourself saying, I could eat broccoli or I could eat, eat a donut, and most of us are going to choose the donut. Um, this is the way numbing works in a culture, and it's one of the great challenges for us pastorally because if we want to move people from a place where they're, they're numb and they're distracted into a place where they have deep relationships with God and with one another... Uh, where they have a deep understanding of who they are, we have to invite them to press into the anxieties that cause them to want to numb themselves and distract themselves. And that's tremendously challenging. The beauty of it is that Christianity has a lot to say about identity, and the sense of unbundled identity is also a ministry opportunity. The gospel story tells us that the life, the soul, the body has meaning and purpose, that you're here for a reason. That rather than having to make something of ourselves, we're made into something by Jesus. In other words, that what we're after in our anxious, hand-wringing search is something that's given to us by grace through Jesus Christ. To be sure, that's not always a welcome message because people get attached to a certain sense of identity and they find themselves happily attached to their identity as who they are as a worker or as a spouse or whatever. And the Christian calling to identity, to our identity in Christ, deconstructs that and reintroduces a certain sense of anxiety. It's part of the challenge. Um, it's part of the challenge because work, for instance, at any level of society has meaning and purpose because of the creation mandate and God's new making of all things. That reframes work in, way that's, in a way that's both liberating but also challenging. If you find your identity in work and the, the scriptures are telling you that your work matters but it doesn't matter that much, that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, if you're frustrated by your work and frustrated by a sense of meaningless in your work, it's a story that gives you hope because it says, hey, all of work, whatever you've been called to do, it's part of God's new making of the world. It's contributing to the goodness of creation and it has a purpose. Um, but again, all of this comes with the challenge. People have to press into their anxiety and their suffering in order to get relief from it, from the gospel. Third feature is the bravery of unbelief. Um, what's interesting about Charles Taylor's book is that he doesn't actually, in, in all of this deconstruction he does of secularism, he doesn't offer a real strong apologetic response 
Um, but what he does offer is a critique of secularism and secularism's narrative. Um, it's basically equivalent, I don't know if some of you all remember when Amy Poehler and Tina Fey hosted Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update, and they would do this segment called Really, where they would like read quotes of people and go, really? Is that really what you think? Do you really believe this? This is kind of Charles Taylor's critique of the secular worldview. Like, really? Is that really what you think? Is that really the best way of, of shaping the world, of understanding the way the world works? Here's an example that, that I think is, um, is helpful with this. Uh, this comes from before the days when Louis C.K. was uh, a disgraced pariah. Um, he was on the Conan O'Brien show, and he said something that's amazing. He describes this story where he was driving down the road one day, and Bruce Springsteen came on the radio, and he got kind of caught up in this Bruce Springsteen song, and it just awakened all this sorrow in him and this longing in him, as, as music tends to do, as beauty tends to do. He's just totally caught up in it, but overwhelmed by it, and he had to actually pull his car over and cry. And he tells this story in the context of talking about why he won't let his kids have cell phones. And he says this, he says, what the phones are taking away from us is the ability to just sit there. That's being a person. Because underneath everything in your life, there is that thing, that empty, forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone. It's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything, you're in your car and you just start going, oh no, here it comes, that I'm alone. It starts to visit on you just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. That's why we text and drive. I look around and pretty much 100% of the people driving are texting and they're killing. Everybody's murdering each other with their cars. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's just so hard. And what's interesting here is, you know, we're talking about the bravery of unbelief. That's exactly what he's talking about. It's brave and it's courageous to embrace the emptiness, the meaninglessness, the aloneness of an empty, meaningless world. And he wants that for his kids. Think about that. He wants that for his kids. I don't want my kids to have cell phones because I want them to feel and embrace the emptiness and the meaninglessness of life. That's the bravery of unbelief that's put forward in the secular age. And it's one of those things where we just, the proper response to this is just to say, really? Do you really think that's the best explanation for the world and for what it means? Do you really think that's an adequate explanation for what that song did to you, for that experience you had when you encountered something that was beautiful and that seemed to reach beyond your, your ordinary experience? It took you someplace. Do you think that there's nothing to that beyond this emptiness, this meaninglessness in life? It's a different kind of apologetic because rather than, rather than taking on the subjects head on, you listen to the stories that are being tell, told and you simply call them into question. Tim Keller talks about this. He talks about challenging unbelievers to doubt their doubts. That's kind of what's happening here. There's a challenge from, uh, there's a challenge to sort of look at the stories that are being told by those around us and simply call them, could you call that into question? Could you doubt your doubts? Uh, it's a way of changing the ground of the debate. So when we're questioned, when we're confronted with anti-religious narratives, the question is, does that satisfy? Does that make sense of what you've experienced? Does the story being told by atheists and secularists adequately account for the power of love, the wonder of childbirth, the beauty of art, the presence of people who are deeply transformed? I think one of the most profound apologetics that we have for ourselves as a church is old saints. 
there's something you can't explain about an old saint who's been walking with Jesus their whole life. There's something powerful in their presence. It reminds me of something that Rich Plass once said. Uh, uh, Rich Plass said that the most important thing that we have in our ministries is a transformed and transforming presence. I think that when you come into contact with somebody who's lived their life with Jesus and been made new by him, it's really hard to argue with you know, the, the details of whether or not the resurrection is true. You're being, you're being confronted with something that needs an explanation, and it needs an explanation beyond these kind of materialistic ex- explanations for reality. Taylor writes this, he says, in our religious lives, we are responding to a transcendent reality. We all have some sense of this, which emerges from identifying and recognizing some mode of what I've called fullness. And that's the way he refers to the experience of transcendence. He calls it fullness and seeking to attain it. Modes of fullness recognized by exclusive humanisms and others that remain within the imminent frame are therefore responding to transcendent reality, but recognizing it. In other words, he's saying throughout the secular world, there are these moments that people can't explain. There's a screenwriter by the name of Brian Koppelman who has this great podcast, and uh, he was interviewing uh, the lead singer of the band Toad the Wet Sprocket. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But he's interviewing them, and they're both talking about the creative process. Brian's a screenwriter, and this guy's talking about songwriting. And he's talking about getting caught up in these moments where it's just working. It, it's, just, it's just flowing out of you naturally. A lot of artists and a lot of athletes talk about getting into this flow state, right? Where, you know, where uh, you get to a place where uh, somebody like LeBron James just gets hot in a game and he just can't miss. And he'll talk about, I'm just in this flow state. It's supernatural. I don't know how to explain it. Artists kind of experience the same thing oftentimes. They, a lot of times the work of an artist is just laborious and painful and difficult. And then every now and then something happens and the experience kind of opens up and it just flows and it comes naturally. And so they're talking about this kind of thing and, and Brian pauses and he goes, you know, as an atheist those moments are really hard to explain. And I know Brian a little bit, and so I got on Twitter after I heard him say this and kind of ribbed him a little bit for it and said, well, maybe, maybe they're hard to explain because something's actually going on here. And his answer to that was to say, his answer to that was to say, um, it brings me back to the idea that we only have this moment, we only have right now, and we should cling to the good moments when they come, uh, knowing that they're so few and so fleeting. And again, it's a moment where I think the proper response is to simply say, really? Does that adequately account for what you actually experience? Does that adequately account for what you found in, uh, in those kind of moments? What Taylor is saying is he's saying secularism isn't true and those narratives don't hold up. So therefore we should steadily, quietly, patiently try to poke holes in those narratives when we see them, when we hear them being told. And he also has a kind of hope about the future. He believes that because secularism isn't true, it'll become less plausible over time. With dissatisfaction with that narrative, will quote, intensify sense of living in a wasteland for subsequent generations, and many young people will begin to explore beyond the boundaries. What Taylor's saying is he's saying, this isn't going to last. This, this way of seeing the world, this way of experiencing the world, it's not going to last because it's not true, and it won't hold up to scrutiny over a long time. We need to be careful, though, of of the extreme on the other side. Christianity doesn't promise an ultimately happy life. It promises a kind of joy that sustains us in spite of unhappy experiences. And that becomes our greatest apologetic. 
how we're sustained through suffering. Again, back to old saints. Most old saints you meet that have a powerful presence have not had simple lives. They've all endured suffering. They've endured loss. They've endured hardship. Pope Benedict, the, uh, uh, the pope before Pope Francis, um, was you know, widely considered in the Catholic Church as like one of the greatest theologians of the Catholic Church in, in all of the history of the Catholic Church. And he wrote uh, a few years before he retired from being the Pope, uh, which was a new thing, by the way, when that happened. Um, a few years before he did that, he wrote, this, he wrote this interesting treatise on the church in a postmodern world and on the ways that the church needs to be advocating and carrying out its mission. And he's talking about that classic trinity of truth, beauty, and goodness, and the ways that the church is responsible to hold those things out before the world. And he says the mistake that the church has often made in the, in, the, in the modern world is that it's held out truth. It's tried to make its arguments from the truth of the gospel and the truth of the scriptures and the truth of the church's witness throughout history. And he says the problem with where we are is that people don't care about truth. We don't win them over with our facts and our figures. He says what's going to make the difference in the age to come is beauty and goodness. We need to be finding ways to point out the beauty of the world, the beauty of creation, the beauty of art, the impact of beauty on the human heart and the human soul. And then we need goodness. We need virtue. We need moral transformation. We need people to meet Christians and go, these are saints and they're different. And something has happened to transform them. Again, it's this idea that the most powerful thing we bring into the room at any given time is our transformed and transforming presence. It's made me think a lot about about um, it's made me think a lot about how we might recover this in our in our churches today, and it it brings me back again and again to the wisdom literature because the wisdom literature is really about it's it's in the 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 tradition of sort of all of Western philosophy, and that it's this search for the good life. What does life mean? How can we live it well? What does a thriving, flourishing kind of life look like? And what I think is that, you know, right now we've seen this resurgence of that kind of thinking and that kind of talking in people like Brene Brown and Tony Robbins. But they do so, especially in Robbins' case, less so in Brene Brown's, because she's got some interesting Christian background stuff going on, but especially in Tony Robbins. And I'll say with Brene Brown, you, you can read her in a, totally secular, uh, in a totally secular way, and she works. Her stuff works. But with Brown and Robbins, you have, this, you have things that they're essentially saying that can be found right in the wisdom literature. Brene Brown is saying we need emotional honesty, we need vulnerability, we need to not pretend that we're something we aren't. We need our yeses to be yes and our noes to be no. We need to live with a sense of honesty and vulnerability about who we truly are. Tony Robbins is saying, have a vision for your life. Don't drift aimlessly. Be smart with your money. Be savvy in business. Take care of your body and attend to your most important relationships. And these things are huge. These, the success of their writing and of Tony Robbins' seminars and all of this, they're enormous and they're having a tremendous impact, especially in the kind of upper echelons of the business world. And what I would argue is that the resources for the good life, they're arguing for the good life. And they're arguing for it from a completely secularist point of view. And I would argue that those resources are available in the scriptures, but if the church isn't accessing them and advocating for them, people will find them elsewhere because they're hungry for it. And this is where Oprah is absolutely right. Life should be filled with joy and with awe, and we should be pursuing that kind of joy and awe. 
But we need to find ways to tap into the Christian library of resources to do that. Resources that can help release people from anxiety about envy and money and foster contentment. Resources that help point people uh, to ways to manage toxic relationships. That help people pursue meaningful work and life-giving habits. That help them to foster health. I'm not saying that we should abandon the regular preaching of the gospel at all. I'm saying that the life of the church, the holistic life of the church, needs to find ways to pay attention to these things that make life full and vibrant. We should care about them because the scriptures do. And again, we should see the wisdom literature, the book of Philemon, see what the Thessalonians has to say about meaningful work and peace with our neighbors, and find ways to equip our churches with these things so that people can look at our churches and say, man, there's something different about these people. They're living flourishing lives. They live in contentment. They live in, in vibrant community with one another. Something else is happening here. And that's a tremendous apologetic. So I'm going to wrap up by talking about a couple of other things that have been percolating to me with regard to where the church is these days and the way the biblical witness might inform our thinking. Um, a lot of what you hear right now as people are looking at secularism and looking at what's happened in the world, and they're saying, you know, we have this great witness in the book of Daniel for how to live in exile in a, in a hostile culture. And I think there's a lot to be taken from Daniel. I don't want to throw him out altogether. But I also think that there's some real problems with trying to look to Daniel as an example. Because Daniel comes into his story as a guy who had spiritual resources in the first place. And so many of the people that we're going to encounter and that are already in our churches come into our churches with no spiritual background and with no spiritual resources. Daniel had a tradition. He was almost 15 years old, maybe slightly older before he was taken into exile. So he was traditioned as a Jew. He was traditioned as somebody who went to the temple. He took part in the feasts and the fasts and the, 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 the yearly uh, liturgical calendar of Jewish life. So when he comes into exile, he comes with a background of spiritual formation that really prepared him to do the things that he had to do and to resist these temptations. I've come to believe that we're actually a whole lot more like the story of Esther for most of us. Esther's an orphan, not just in the sense that she's been orphaned from her parents, but she's been orphaned from tradition. She's a girl with two names, her Hadassah, her Jewish name, that they really don't use much in the book at all, and she's Esther. Esther's a Persian name, and it's a, it's, a, it's a pun in Hebrew for the word hidden, but it's also named after the goddess Astrid, a, a Persian god. She's raised by her uncle Mordecai, and while Mordecai is a popular Jewish name today, at the time, it wasn't a Jewish name at all. It was named after the god Morduk. So you have these two people who are living in exile and who have fully assimilated themselves into exile. In fact, at the beginning of the story, nobody knows that they're Jews. They don't know she's a Jew when she's taken to the temple. Nobody knows that, uh, that Mordecai's a Jew until he refuses to bow down to Haman. And they say, why are you doing this? And he says, it's because I'm a Jew. This would have become a shocking fact to the people who were listening to him. Where Daniel won't eat the food that's given to him and where he prays publicly, there's almost no religious practice that takes place in the entire book of Esther except for a call to a fast. Um, and Esther gladly eats the food that's given to her when she's taken to the palace. She does all of the beauty regimen stuff that's, that's asked of her, much of which probably would have violated her, the Jewish ceremonial law. And then, of course, the biggest violation is that she sleeps with the king, something that would run against her Jewish identity in profound ways. And it's easy to... I think it's easy to sort of become judgmental over those things. I don't want to do that. 
because Esther is a victim of her culture. She's a victim of the background in which she was raised. And I think many people who are coming in the doors of our church who are so far divorced from any sense of Christian morality and ethics, they're victims of the culture in which they've been, in which they've been raised. So how does Esther point the way for us? Well, she faces a crisis in her life that forces her to reckon with her Jewish identity. And she has an awakening that brings her back to faith and brings her back to her, the, the Jewish identity. There's a beautiful moment in the story when Mordecai confronts her and he asks her to go to the king. The, the, Jews are going to be, the Jews are going to be massacred. Mordecai comes to her and begs her for his help. And she says, I can't do it. He'll kill me if I go before him without being asked. And Mordecai says this profound thing. He says, um, he says if you refuse to help us, help for the Jews will come, to another, come from another place. Uh, but you and your father's line will perish. And it's a, it's a weird line because he's essentially saying, if you don't help us, the Jews will be fine. He's got faith that God's going to do something to help the Jews, but something bad's going to happen to you. Well, why would something bad happen to her if the Jews are going to be fine, right? It's an interesting juxtaposition. And what most commentators on the text say, and what, 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 uh, especially in the Jewish commentaries on the text, is they're saying Mordecai is pointing her to her Jewish identity. He's pointing her to the fact that her, her father was a Jew, she's a Jew. If she doesn't stand up and embrace that Jewish identity, then her father's line perishes there. She loses connection with her place as one of God's people and will lose it forever, will be lost and, and disconnected from it. And it's that confrontation that wakes her up and makes her willing to go risk her life. The fact that she wants to be identified with God's people and doesn't want to be cut off. Pardon me, sorry. Um, and what's fascinating is the story unfolds. Most of us, hopefully you're all familiar with the story. The story unfolds, the Jews are rescued. <clears throat> and the end of the book ends with a new tradition that arises, and that's the tradition of Purim. And in most Jewish communities today, um, Purim is like the second most important festival that takes place throughout the year. You celebrate when, uh, in, in memory of the, the Exodus, and then you celebrate in memory of uh, and celebrate in memory of Purim as the second greatest festival. And a philosopher, a Jewish philosopher by the name of Yoram Hazoni, explains why. He says, uh, he says, in in the Exodus, the Jewish people were given their sense of identity for the first time. This is who you are. You're God's chosen people. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to make you into this great nation. What happens in Purim is that the, uh, the Jews had been scattered into exile. And in exile, many of them had compromised. Many of them had, could now pass as Persians. They were, they were disconnected from their tradition. And what Purim did is Purim called them all back. Purim said, let's re-identify ourselves. Let's reaffirm our identity as Jews and as God's people. And let's have a festival that celebrates that identification and renews it. And so at Sinai and in the Exodus, you have the establishment of God's people, and in Purim, you have its renewal. And I think what, what that should awaken us to is that I think this particular moment in Western culture where Christian identity has fallen apart, where it's become so scattered, and there's so many reasons that it's become scattered, but where it's become so scattered, we have an opportunity now to call people to a renewal of their identity, I think like Esther, our disconnection from tradition, from a real formative tradition, makes us orphans. And we need to renew our identity and we need new formative traditions. 
Cormac McCarthy in, in The Road says, when you've got nothing else, construct ceremonies out of the air and breathe life into them. We need to figure out how can we, as church communities, establish ways of identifying ourselves as God's people that are life-giving and that call people back to their identity as God's people. I'm not talking about a reversion of tradition for tradition's sake, but I think we need to look at the tradition and understand things like worship and liturgy and the church calendar. We need to look at those things as formative practices they were developed, think of them as, as practices that were developed by pastors who were saying, how can we immerse people in the world and the life of the gospel? So the church calendar emerges as a way of shaping the year so it's an extended meditation on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The liturgy is this regular rhythm of covenant renewal, gathering, recommitting to a covenant, and sending people back out on mission. There are feasts and fasts that mark the year with celebration and with mourning. Celebrations so that people who have reasons to celebrate and reasons to have joy can come together and bring out that, that joy and bring it out in a feast and bring it out in a God-centered way. And then seasons of fasting that acknowledge the fact that the church is full of people who are broken and who are hurting and who are longing for renewal. The power of these kinds of traditions, and again, I'm not saying we need to take all of those traditions and bring them on, but we need to think about them and think about what are the formative traditions that are going to define our churches and are going to help to shape God's people over the long haul. We need to think about them as life-immersing so that they become part of a way of life and not simply an event that gets people excited and pumped up. We need to think of them as communal. How can people share these practices with one another? We need to think of them in such a way that they engage the whole person, the, the emotions, the body, the mind. And we need to think of them as opportunities to rehearse and prepare for the whole of human experience, for joy and for suffering, for gain and for loss, for pain and for happiness. The temptation for the church in a disenchanted world that's addicted to numbing is to be one more numbing presence, one more numbing practice that people can come to church and just forget all their troubles because we're going to make them happy with great music and great songs. Bart Simpson has a great quote describing life in the, life in the, the mega church. He, uh, through a series of events, he stumbles into this religious revival and, and he loves it and it's, it's wild and it's exciting and he comes home and he says, hey, mom and dad, we, can, we need to get back to going to church. And they kind of hem and haw. And he says, no, church doesn't have to be boring. There can be lights and smoke and Tybo. <laughs> and I think that's where, for most of us, for many of us in North America, not speaking to this room, because I don't know your individual context, but for the church in North America, that's where so many of us are. We're trying to figure out how do we entertain people so they come back the next week? How do we give them excitement? How do we numb them so that they come back the next week? My friend, uh, my friend Kevin Twitt, I'll try to wrap up here. My friend Kevin Twitt was a, is a great songwriter. He works with the ministry Indelible Grace, if you've heard of them. Um, they, they rewrite old hymns. And he was on a songwriting forum in Nashville a few years ago where he was asked, uh, the, the whole panel was asked, um, what makes a great song? And they kind of go down the line, and Kevin was last. And Kevin's this older guy, Presbyterian minister, great dude. And you know, down the line, it's like a great hook or you know, a, a, a catchy chorus or you know, whatever these different answers were from these, most of whom were like big CCM names. 
And then gets to Kevin, and Kevin characteristically kind of grins and says, I like a song that prepares people for their encounter with death. <laughs> and what he went on to say, and I think it's so true, is that when in our churches, people are coming and they're bringing their, their death-encountering experiences with them. And so often we don't give them resources to help them. Instead, we help them numb themselves. We train them to numb themselves. We face, they face the temptation to numb themselves all these other ways, and then they find in the church just yet one more resource for that. And I think it's tragic. I, there's an image that always haunts me when I think about this. I was leading worship at our church a few years ago. Uh, I, was, I spent 16 years as a pastor of a church in Louisville, um, and I was leading worship that one particular morning. And I looked out, and on about the third row of the church, there were three women who were sitting just a few seats away from each other that just absolutely typify to me this thought that worship should be a preparation for an encounter with death. The first one was a girl named Jenna. Jenna had a nine-month-old baby and a brain tumor and was going through chemo and was going through a hell of a time. And she was you know, essentially told that she had a few months to maybe a couple of years to live. And this was several years ago. She ended up passing on from, uh, from cancer. But there she was, third row, right on the aisle, arms raised, singing, participating. About three seats away from her was a good friend of my wife and I, a woman named, a woman named Amy. And Amy's this elite surgeon in, a, in the city of... Um, and Amy, that week, had lost two patients on the table uh, in surgery. And Amy doesn't lose patients. <laughs> like, she's one of those doctors. She's a machine. And we had, you know, on Thursday night of that week, my wife and I had gone over to their house, and we brought dinner, and we just kind of sat with her and her husband and just tried to sort of feel with her the sorrow of, of that loss. And then about three seats away from her was a woman named... Um, her, name, her full name was Victoria Triumph. And Victoria was uh, about 42 years old. A few months earlier, had gotten baptized. Um, when she was 16 years old, her mom drove her to a strip club, handed her to the strip club owner, and says, I'll be back to pick her up in a few hours. Make sure that I keep half of her money. And that is essentially the life that she lived for the next 22 years. And one night at the strip club, a group of women from uh, several different churches in the city showed up at the strip club and they brought a meal and they invited her to come to a Bible study and ultimately they invited her to come to church and she heard the gospel and she was transformed by it. And so here are these, this snapshot, these three women just all sitting, you know, seats from each other, going through, you know, either going through the darkest seasons of their lives or having just come out of this tremendous multiple year, decades long suffering. And I just had to ask myself, what are we giving them? Are we equipping them for the world that they live in? Are we equipping them to, to encounter those things and to have language that responds to them well? I think, I think worship and I think the, the life of the church should help people feel their way around the world and feel doors open and walls open into rooms where God meets them in the midst of their heartache and their brokenness. I think the lights, the smoke, and the Taibo don't help them at all. And so we've got to figure out how we can prepare them and support them for those seasons in the dark. Thank you very much.